Hi, I'm Adrian Maidman. Welcome to I'm Also, where we talk to people with multiple or varied careers, pursuits or hobbies. In this episode, we're talking to Simon Maxwell, whose career has covered editing, post-production, directing and teaching, working for both large organisations and himself. Hello, Simon. Oh, hello, Adrian. Hi, hi, Simon. I know you don't like talking, so I'm going to buy you a coffee after this. Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So we're look, it's about your career today. Right. We're exploring changes. So what do you do? How would you describe yourself? Semi-retired. No, I would. <laughs> I think that's wishful thinking. Uh, I teach. I um, edit videos. I do um, a little bit of directing. I do a lot of filming. Kind of do a jack of all trades, basically. Okay. That's, that's good. That's, we'll, we'll keep going then. How did you get into... the the film industry uh uh that's a very good question um i think i was one of those kids that at school who didn't really know what they wanted to do and a friend of my parents um was a photographer and he took me to a television studio and i just knew instantly the moment i walked in the front door that this is the sort of environment that i wanted to work in and i was pretty much right because i'm still involved in that sort of thing you know um today what was your first job in in sort of in the tv film media industry i was a i was an apprentice this was back in the days when they had apprentices so i was a me i guess a media apprentice for two years and during the two years, I spent, you know, three, four, five months in various departments. So of, of where? Uh, it was a it was a company in Auckland called Vidcom, who was the one of the first uh, video production facilities, if you like. But they also had um, they had their own production arm, and there, so their main business, that well, their only business, was shooting. Um, uh, television commercials for the local market. They also finished off um, or did post-production on film television commercials. So people would shoot on 35mm film and bring it in and we'd transfer it to uh, tape in those days and finish it off. And I think uh, from memory, we also did some subcontracting work for TV, TVNZ. Um and so I seem to remember doing overnight shoots for TVNZ and things like that. And and then you, you wanted to get out of New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. So I went on an OE with some friends and to and ended up in London like probably a lot of Kiwis do. Um, but I happened to meet a guy in a pub who was recruiting people to go to the Middle East to work for um, for the American news networks. Um, and since I'd never been to the Middle East and didn't know where Beirut and Tehran were, I thought it sounded appealing. So I spent eight years of my life working in the Middle East for American news networks. And did you, well, I'm not sure if, did you enjoy it? Would you enjoy that or did, was it freaky? It was freaky. It was a challenge. <laughs> it was a challenge. So, um, but I enjoyed it from the point of view that... Was it life-threatening? That's what people sort of probably think. Yeah, area. that was pretty. What what was going on at that time? Uh, lots of people shooting each other. Really, what it boils down to. 
Um, so, uh, so yeah, because I had a New Zealand passport, I ended up in getting into places that um, the Americans and the British couldn't go fundamentally. So there was me, there was an Aussie guy, a couple of South Africans. And so we would, we would go into parts of the Middle East that were difficult for Americans to get into um, and shoot some stuff and smuggle it out and, and it would end up on the you know six o'clock American news for ABC. I did a lot of work for ABC. So you mainly filming? Filming and editing and you know satelliting. In those days, they there was no um, internet, so we always you know we sent stuff back to America using a satellite ground station. Oh, how how were you editing that footage? We had um, we had umatic uh, umatic machines. Everything was done on tape in those days. Did you have to cut the tape? No, not, not quite <laughs> like that. a film. Not that not, far back. Not that far back. <laughs> uh, so everything, it was the dawn of ENG for the Americans, which means that they just, you know, ditched film and moved into video. And since I'd come from a video background, they were quite keen for me to work for them. Plus, I had a New Zealand passport, which was a huge bonus as far as they were concerned. So I ended up with this half a ton of video equipment to carry with me to wherever I went. Um, in Which, you know, it was all boxed up in flight cases and I turn up at the airport and I check into first first class, um, and um, and 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 the and the lady would say, "Have you got any baggage, sir?" And behind me was this huge mountain of gears, about half a ton usually. And so we check all that in, pay the twenty thousand dollars, pounds, whatever it was, euros, and excess baggage, and fly off to, um, you know, Tehran, Beirut, uh, Damascus, uh, Tel Aviv. Mm. Saudi Arabia sometimes, Tripoli in, in Libya sometimes. Did you have any really scary moments? Um, Did you just smile sort of politely? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because uh, the scariest one was when we um, they were looking for people. It was at the time when the Israelis were kind of trying to displace the, well, they did displace the Palestinians out of Lebanon. So um, they had crews all over the place, but they were short on people in in the uh, Palestinian side of things, um, for, for obvious reasons, because the Israelis were just pounding the shit out of it, and so they were looking for people to go into the um, go into the um, Palestinian area and stay very close to the PLO and file stories from there. So they asked me, and I said yes. It sounded interesting. Um, so every night was heavy bombardment. We slept in the we slept in the um, underground bunkers at night. Uh, and then during the day, there were these kind of intense tank battles and snipers and all this sort of stuff. And that went on for a couple of weeks. Um, so that was pretty scary. Yeah. So how did you get your footage out in that kind of situation? Well, you pay this guy quite a considerable sum of cash to um, to take it out, basically. A local guy. Sort of courier kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, courier guy. So he would kind of after you know, after everything was edited, you would um give him the tape and he would uh literally just leg it across the street with it, hoping he wouldn't get shot and then through an up building and over something else and you know, to get it across the green line. There was the green line in Beirut. He he getting it across the green line was a difficult thing. But, you know, he, he always managed to do it. So that was fine. That must have got a bit tiring. Yeah, After you got really, yeah got bored with that very quickly, uh, and then switched to kind of more kind of um, you know like commercials and and um, music videos. 
So I did eight years of that and had enough. And then uh, and then I switched to um, a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, was an editor in a, a Soho um, facilities, and and he uh, he heard I was back. He heard I'd given up on the on the news thing, and he off, offered me a job at the facility he worked at or arranged for, for me to go and work there. So I kind of upskilled in all the kind of technology that they were using, which was pretty advanced at the time, and got a job editing TV ads and TV commercials and, and music videos and uh, programs for the BBC, documentary dramas for BBC and Channel 4. So, um, so I learned the kind of the commercial side of post-production, probably about four years of it, five years of it. And you got to work with lots of... Yeah, I got to work with lots of really good directors. That was yep. the thing. That was the thing that kind of that helped me because, um, you know, to begin with, I did all the kind of graveyard stuff, all the shitty stuff. And, but, you know, um, as time went on, I got to work with, you know, high-profile directors on high-profile jobs. And eventually I got, you know, they would say, uh, you know, I've got three shoots on next week. Um, can you do, you know, can you direct one of them, you know? And, you know, um, so I had a couple of really good clients who would go, oh, I've got these, I've got this little shoot. Can you kind of, can you come along and direct it for us? And I mean, but they always added that, you know, you can, um, what did they say? You can edit your way out of a paper bag. So we, so we know if you fuck it up, at least you'll be able to save it in the edit, which was basically true. And it's true to, true to today. True to today. Yes. Yeah. And, and you got to work with. Big names, not just New Zealand famous. You got sort of world famous. Yeah. So in that kind of area, um, just by association, I um, got to work with. Um, I spent six months working with Michael Jackson during his European tour, which is pretty exciting. Did he? Did he have a like? You know, we talk sort of talk about a balance or multiple careers or full on. Was he just? Did he have any balance or was it just sort of? Not that I saw. Just completely focused. Full on. Yeah focused on what he was doing at the time i mean i mean the, to be honest with you those artists you know those those high profile artists they tend to be very very focused about what they what they're doing at the time is that not all elements of their career or are they uh well my my involvement with most of these artists is, was was pretty much exclusively professional in the video yeah so so i only saw them when we were working on um, well, I only had contact with them, you know, during, you know, when we were doing a project with yeah. them. So, but, you know, the thing that made them stand out from the others was that they were totally 100% focused. Yeah. Um, so, so the longevity of their career, is, that's probably a key point, just being so probably, focused. Probably, yeah. They they knew exactly what they wanted yeah. and they knew exactly what how to go about it. Um, and, um, but they were all open to, you know, ideas. Yeah. All receptive to ideas. It's just that they were really focused about yeah. what they want. He did a George Michael video as well. Did you yeah, I worked with George Michael a few times. Same sort of thing, focused? <clears throat> oh, totally. Uh, actually, my first job with George Michael was I got a phone call about 7 or 8 o'clock on a Friday evening from a record company I used to do a lot of work for uh, to say, oh, could I come in? And so I did. <clears throat> and there was a very unhappy George Michael there. And um he, uh, someone, not me, a production company had shot um, his concert at um, Wembley, Wembley Arena, which is the small, ver you know, yeah, Wembley Arena, which is like a 5,000 seater. Um, and George, you know, kind of had been briefed on what to do. 
probably 15, 20 cameras or something. And uh, George Michael hated it. He just hated the way he looked. He was quite vain. Um, and so um, he... Aren't he, we all, Simon? We, we, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he, uh, so he was there with the record company, um, trying to figure out what to do with this concert that um, George Michael hated. And so, well, I sat down with him and went through it shot by shot. You know, it's kind of like this took a while. Um, and basically, everything, every shot with the left hand side of his face had to be removed. Uh, and his passing comment was. Um, you know, I said to him, you know, if it's there, we can change it. But if it's not there, you know, it's going to be a little bit more tricky. Um, and he said, yeah, his passing comment was, um, vanity shall prevail. I always remember that. Uh, and he left. <laughs> and so... Um, Clear direction. Though. Yeah. Vanity shall prevail. Take everything out that has got the left side of my face. Um, so, yeah. But he was great to work with. He was so focused. And he was such a nice guy. You know, I mean, you know, nice guy. He wasn't rude or arrogant or anything like that. And I think that's a common thread with a lot of these people is that um, most of them are nice, relatively nice people to deal with. You know, there's no egos involved because they're at the top of their game anyway. Yeah, uh, they have nothing to prove. Um, Did anyone give you a bit of like a bit of um, star power? Kind of made you feel a little bit um, wow. I'm standing in front of someone famous, kind of thing. Um, I think working for um, working for um, um, Mick Jagger was like that uh, because. He'd been, I'd, gr I'd grown up with the Rolling Stones music, um, you know, of that era. <clears throat> and so he was, he was a massive, he was much more, much more of an icon to me than say George, um, than Michael Jackson. Uh, so, um, so, you know, the Rolling Stones thing or the Mick Jagger thing came through a friend of mine at MTV where I was working at the time. And he, he phoned me up one night and said, oh, guess what? <laughs> and I went, no, what? guess what? Um, and he said, oh, I've been talking to, um, we had Mick Jagger in today and we we're doing some interviews and he was looking for um, like an up and coming indie director and, and we gave him your name and phone number. And I went, you're shitting me, really? And, and he, um, he said, no, no, no. He said, he, he's, uh, his, assistant, his assistant's going to call you tomorrow to arrange a time that you can have a conversation with him. So, and sure enough, his assistant did. And she said, oh, Mick's, gonna, Mick's you know, kind of like a very busy, busy guy. And he is, uh, he's going to give you a call um, tonight, sometime between 5 and 7 o'clock. So you're waiting by the phone? I was just <laughs> sitting by the phone, <laughs> waiting for the phone call. Um, and he did. And he was just, you know, he was kind of like, really, I mean, I thought it was someone taking, you know, taking the mickey. Because of the accent. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but uh, I spoke to him and went to have lunch with him. Oh, this is a funny thing. Because I met him at his office. And so I was kind of a little bit nervous because just because of, you know, my perception of him. And he said, and he said oh, do you fancy a spot of lunch? And I went, yeah, that sounds like a good plan. So we go downstairs, and I'm thinking we're going to walk to the restaurant. This huge black limo turns up. We get in the back of this black limo. We drive for about an hour through London traffic, and we turn up at this restaurant, this Italian restaurant, go inside. There's no one there. He'd closed the restaurant down. Wow. 
He, he, I mean, I, I think it was with his local, one of his local restaurants. But I said, um, it's a bit quiet here, Mick, isn't it? He said, yeah, no, I kind of bought the whole restaurant for this. So I can talk to you in private. So um, so he was great to work with. And, 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 you know, in his typical style, his video was supposed to start off, supposed to have been a kind of indie, raw thing. No girls and all this sort of stuff. Um, and by the end of it, We'd had a casting session with 400 girls in Covent Garden and blah, blah, and all this sort of stuff. And what song was that? Um, I think it was called Out of, Fo Out of Focus. Yeah. I guess technology plays a lot of part in the changing of career. Would you say that? Would you yeah. Know? Yeah, it does. Well, technology is constantly changing. So you have to keep up with it <clears throat> and adapt. Um, and so that's what you do. And then you ended up back in New Zealand. Yeah, I know. Funny that. That's a change. That was funny. I never planned to come back to New Zealand, but there you go. Funny how things change. Any other highlights? Coming back to New Zealand. I guess that was, was that a culture shock? Yeah. I always find it a culture shock when you come back from overseas. Yeah, definitely. You must have found it when you came back from here, from Aussie. From anywhere, when I came back from anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah I came back two weeks ago, I had a culture shock. <laughs> What's going on here? I've been away two days. Yeah. Oh, I guess, oh, I guess what are you doing now? Teaching. Teaching and doing... Um, oh, we've got a new business we started up. With Discla a... Disclaimer, Simon, we're working together on some stuff as well, I guess we should... Oh, yeah, you better put the disclaimer. disclaimer. Okay, so we're working together on some stuff, which is very exciting. That's, that's a disclaimer. <clears throat> and... Um, we're embracing new technology. Um, I mean, things have changed dramatically in the last 12 to 18 months. Probably, probably actually longer than that, isn't it? More like three to five years. Um, but, you know, television is die, slowly dying a death. So, you know, the days of doing television commercials and, and so forth um, have pretty much slipped away, um, which is fine. Um, the... Um, the content for YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram has shot up. Yeah. So, you know, so there's an exciting future ahead for those of us who are involved in digital media. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> and no doubt the, you know, the landscape will change. And Some of the key skills are the same, though, aren't they? Yeah. So you, you still have to, you know, kind of like from a, um, from a script point of view, you know, an idea is you still have to come up with an idea. Um, that's going to, you know, going to work. And um, the filming side of things is still the same. You kind of, yeah, have to make it look interesting. It has to be in focus and, you know, it has to look good and all this sort of stuff. The editing side of things is the same. It's just the technology, the tools that you use have changed. But the process, the workflow is still the same. It's just um, it's just the technology is changing. Yeah. My only last question was, was there anyone sort of famous that did have other hobbies? Or did, you know, wasn't it sort of, wasn't like a whole career of music? Did anyone like go out to the garden in between like recording their songs? Or? No, not that I know of. <clears throat> just that focus. Yeah, just totally focused on the job. I could probably learn something from that then. Yeah, but you know, obviously, when the project was over, they all disappeared off to their house in the south of France or their house. Took a break the, then. Yeah, took a break. Then. There is work balance there. Then, yeah, there? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So um, focus on the project, finish the project. Yeah, leave the country, go somewhere else for a holiday. That's kind of the argument for living in a big city: is that you know, if you can do it, particularly if you're self-employed or you know whatever, is to focus on the projects that bring in the money to afford. You know that you, that that um, 
that uh, pays for your lifestyle. And then once the projects are finished, disappear off to the Caribbean or go to Africa or do something like that. That's good. I think we'll leave it with the key point of you need to find something that will pay for your lifestyle. Yeah. You need to find something that's going to pay for your lifestyle. I try to find that now, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Simon. You're welcome, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs>